You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today on the podcast, we have Reverend Robbie Kanzler of Hammond Mission Church in Chicago. You can check them out at hammondmissionchurch.blogspot.com. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Bert Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Reverend Robbie Kanzler from the Mission Church in Hammond, Indiana. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I actually didn't grow up in the Church of the Nazarene, which I think people expect from me, but I grew up in the Wesleyan Church until I was about 16 years old, and then that church actually closed, and so... Prior to it closing, there were some issues, and so we ended up um, trying to decide on a church. And so my mom grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, and uh, my grandfather was became a Christian in the Church of the Nazarene when he was an adult, and so that's really embedded in our theology, so we're Wesleyans at heart, and so the churches that we church shopped for were the Wesleyan churches within our town that had some sort of Wesleyan bent. That was the only criteria for my mom. And so we um, went to a missionary church and tried that out. And then we went to the Church of the Nazarene in town and we tried that out. And so my mom said we need to make this decision as a family. So my, my two sisters and I, my two sisters that lived at home and I, my mom and dad kind of had this conversation. And both of my sisters were like, we don't care. We just need to go to a church. Mm-hmm. And I said... I really want to go to the Church of the Nazarene, like, for whatever reason. And so my mom was like, all right, since you're the only one that really has an opinion, we'll start going to the Church of the Nazarene. Um, so that's how we ended up at the Church of the Nazarene in wow. my little town. And so. so, okay, how did you end up being a pastor? So at my Wesleyan church that I grew up in, as the church was kind of struggling I worked, so my mom My mom felt a call to missions when she was a child. It's just, I have to give you the background or you're not going to understand. Yeah, go for it. So she always felt like she was going to go to the mission field, and then she ended up getting married really young, and she had my, bro- my half-brothers, and she kind of struggled with what that would look like because she really felt like, as a child, God called her to the mission field. And mm-hmm. so then out of the blue, she gets this card from an organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship, which is like a non-denominational children's ministry they do good news clubs um which if you know john perkins like he talked about good news club because he got saved in one so Mm. it's kind of interesting or they do like backyard bible clubs and stuff so my mom was like maybe this is like totally out of the blue maybe this is from god right so she joined that organization and she led two bible clubs at a trailer park in our town and i assisted with that and she sat on the board she actually got to the point where she was being educated to educate people about children's ministry at a like the class that she taught which is called teaching children effectively is actually worth college credits and my mom doesn't even have like a bachelor's degree so it's kind of like this really cool story but so she her heart was always that in our home missions was never talked about as something that you do over there it was always Mm. someone that you were and Mm -hmm. people that you related to 
because of that, like I had kind of this mindset. So my mom working with Child Evangelism Fellowship, they had a big program for teenagers to work with them. And so in the summer when I was in high school, I went to training, like really intense training for two weeks to learn how to evangelize children. Mm -hmm. Like, and for all of the mixed feelings I have about that now, and maybe I have a little bit more, there were really, really good things about that time. Mm -hmm. I was gone for the summer as a high school student um, doing these Bible clubs all over Michigan. My church at home while I was gone was like dying. Mm And it was very weird, but I felt very compelled to share a message with the church. And I would not have called it preaching at the time because I'd never seen a woman preach. And mm. so I never, I was never told that it wasn't okay because we thought it was, right? We were Wesleyans, which we thought women were, that was fine, but I never saw a woman preach. Wow. So I never knew that that was something I could do. But it was this weird, and I remember being at this host home and just like praying through that and journaling and being like, this is such a, like a weird compulsion in my heart to just share what God is like teaching me and mm. my heart for the church that I'm a part of and what I want to see our congregation do. Like it was a very, in retrospect, a very pastoral heart mm. as a 16 year old kid wow. for my, for the congregation that I was a child in. Mm. And so I emailed one of the board like the secretary of the board who was kind of running things at the time we didn't have a pastor and so I just said I like had to really put this stuff in my heart and I know this sounds crazy but can I just share it on a Sunday and I don't know why but he said yes and so they put me on the schedule and that was the first time I ever preached wow there were only like there were not the church was dying there were not many people I did like this altar call. I'm a 16 year old girl. I did this altar call and I had like the altars were like packed and people were crying. And my mom was like, this was amazing. Like just amazing. And I'm sure my theology was horrible. Like I don't like, I'm sure it wasn't great, but it was really honestly, if I'm honest, it was this sanctification message. Like mm. I really, I was legitimately just saying God wants all of us, the good and the bad. Mm. And we're just saying like, we're giving him half-heartedness and as a 16 year old girl like that grieved me and so I was calling the church to that but I never would have called that a sermon so then um we ended so that church ended up closing went to the church of the Nazarene they had heard that I had preached at the other church right so some at some point in the conversation either I had mentioned it my sisters had mentioned it my parents had mentioned it and so they asked me, like, we're going to do this youth service, because everybody does that sometimes with the youth group. They're like, we want you to preach the message. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's ridiculous. And they're like, no, you're going to do it. So I didn't really have an option. <laughs> so I preached the message, right? Wow. And so then everybody was like, I think there's something to this. So my senior pastor was very instrumental in a, in a lot of my story like he almost annoyingly so I was like a junior I was only in the Nazarene church my junior and senior year of high school mm. at this point I was almost annoyed because I didn't want to be a pastor and I always wanted to go back to the Wesleyan church because that was my whole identity like mm. as a child like that was where we went to church camp like all the PR bands I knew were from Indiana Wesleyan like I always thought I would go back to the Wesleyan Church once I became an adult. That's where I would go. Mm. 
I don't, I think I felt like, I think I felt like it was a temporary thing for us to be mm. in the Church of Nazarene. Right. Everybody was kind of like you, I think you were called to ministry and I was very resistant to that. Very, very resistant. And my pastor was giving me books, like probably a lot of people got it, like this book called like Call Waiting, like this cheesy yes. teen book. I think a lot of people, a lot of people have probably yes, read that book. Yes. And I was so mad because it was so like, if you're called to be a pastor was the assumption in the book. Mm. From what I, and probably it might not even have said that explicitly, but that's how I was reading it because I was wrestling with that call. Right. And so I was mad at him, mm. like, and my pastor and I were close, but I was mad because I was like, I don't want, this is not what I want. I want to be a teacher. Like I wanted, I really wanted to be an urban high school teacher. And I just was like, this is not what I'm, this is not my path. Like I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to teach English in high school. And I'm like, this is not what I'm about. And so I just was really, really frustrated. But during all of that, despite that, he kept giving me opportunities to preach. And I kept taking those opportunities to Mm. preach. It got to the point where he was putting me on the preaching schedule for Sunday nights almost on a monthly basis. I would preach once a month. And I was kind of a punk rocker for a while in high school as I was trying to cut, like, at that point in high school, trying to figure out kind of my identity. And I would invite my friends and they'd come in with, like, mohawks and stuff into our church and listen to me preach. And then other pastors on our district started hearing about my sermons and they started come like people would come right to hear me preach and so we have an event in the in on our region it's called celebrate life but it's like a big talent thing like I know they have it on different regions Mm -hmm. called like I know in northwest Nazarene University it's called main event like all is a different term but there's a there's a a role in that in that talent competition called bible exposition which is essentially preaching Wow. And so you can go as a as a student in high school or middle school and give a sermon and they score you. What? So my youth leaders, I'm a senior in high school at this point. I'm really wrestling, really really wrestling with my call. Um and I they said to me, they said, "We really think you should do the Bible exposition and do a sermon." And I was like, "I don't want to do that." My youth leaders are like, "We'll pay your entry fees for you." But we think this is important. And all of my friends were like, you're such a great preacher, which is funny because like they, but they thought I was like this great preacher at like 18 years old. So they're like, you have to do this. And so I relented kind of against my will and I went and I preached at the district. And so my friends made these little flyers and passed them out to all the other teens so I could have like a congregation because it was awkward to preach to just a few people. Right, right. So these other high school kids came in and heard me preach and I preached and when I got done then the pastor that was scoring me looks at me right when I'm done and he says what you're a senior in high school and I said yes and they said what are you doing in the fall and I said well I'm gonna go to community college for a couple years I'm gonna transfer I want to be a high school English teacher and they're like well we think you should reconsider that have you ever considered studying ministry and going to Olivet Nazarene University and I was like nope I'm not gonna do that like, I didn't even give them, like, time to answer. I was like, nope, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I'm about. I'm not going to do that. And they very patiently, like, this pastor just looks at me and says, I really want you to really think through that and, and possibly reconsider that. 
And I was like, all right, whatever, right? Like kind of in that high school, like whatever, like rolled my eyes kind of way. So then I, I, I go back home and I actually preached at my baccalaureate for my senior class in front of like, my senior class was like 300 people. Mm. So this was like, that's probably the biggest audience to date that I've ever preached before. And I was an 18 year old wow. high school senior getting ready to graduate. You, if you get a good enough score at Celebrate Life, you qualify for regionals at the university. I qualified overwhelmingly, and I was the only female from my district that qualified. And then when I got there, I was the only woman in that category at all at the regional level. Wow. And so they, of course, tell me this because they think it's, like, a great big deal. A big deal. So they go, and it's like, you know, this time I'm being, like, evaluated in multiple and professors and... And different things. So same thing. My friends are all like championing me, inviting Aww. people with flyers, and we go. And so I preach my sermon that I tweaked a little bit, and I, I did it again. And same thing. This professor looks at me and says, um, "What are you doing in the fall?" And I give the same spiel, and he says, "I just, I really think that you need to reconsider going into ministry and coming to Olivet in the fall." Ugh. And I said, "No." <laughs> I'd never been on campus. It was my first time on campus at all of that. Like, it was just this whole thing. And I go home, and I'm just like, I'd, I'd preached all these sermons. Like, I had this reputation at my school of just being this strong Christian person, and my heart was just so conflicted. And that last couple weeks of school, a friend of mine asked me, we were sitting in art class, and she said to me, what do you think God wants you to do with your life? or where God is calling you. And I looked at her and I said, I really think that God is calling me to be a youth pastor. And I said, but I'm not going to do that. And she looked at me and said, but you cannot run from God. And I looked and said, you can try. And so in retrospect, of course, we're all like, well, that was really stupid, right? But I, at that time, like my heart was just so conflicted and so had all these excuses like nobody's gonna want to marry a pastor like nobody's gonna want to be a pastor's husband like nobody's gonna all of these things that I'm never gonna be able to afford to go to school like we're not Mm. well like my family is definitely on the lower end of the economic scale and we're never gonna be able to afford for me to go to a private school so all of these things were going on and I get I'm, I'm processing through all of this like I'm literally losing my hair like I'm so stressed out because mm. I was just really wrestling with what I should do come the fall and Olivet calls me and my mom's like you have a phone call and she's all because I know she was kind of hoping that that's the decision I would make and I answer the phone and they introduced themselves to me, and it was this recruiting team from all of that. And I had sent my ACT scores to them just to have another school, but it wasn't, like, my intention to go there. So they had all that stuff, and, and they called me, and they said, pastors keep calling us about you, and we want to know what it will take to get you to come and at least come to orientation because they will not take no for an answer. Mm of having you at least come and check out the school. Wow. And I was really honest. I'm like, we don't have, I don't have money. We are, like, my parents can't pay for my schooling. I'm really struggling with this. I don't know what this looks like, whatever. And they're like, can you just promise us that you will come to an orientation? 
just come in, see what it's like, go through the process, see if there's a roommate for you. And if you decide that this isn't for you, that's fine. But just come for an orientation and just see. Because all of these people are communicating Mm. to us that they really believe that this is where you should be. And so I get off the phone and my mom was like, well, how is it? conversation so I told her about it and then I just said colleges recruit football players they don't recruit preachers it was kind of this weird moment for me because I was still conflicted I was still really conflicted but I felt like it was kind of this turning point of relenting like maybe God's doing something here so we signed up to go to orientation. It's the last possible orientation that we could have because it was like the end of, I mean, this was literally like a week before I graduated. And so my mom and my dad and I went down to orientation and this was only my second time ever on campus and I made myself hate it. Like, mm-hmm. and I knew that's what I was doing. Like, I just was a horrible person to be around. And so it was probably a good thing that my parents had parent things <laughs> to go to because I probably was a jerk to them. Yeah. And I was like walking around and it was beautiful. Like the campus is really beautiful at all of it. Like say what you will about it, but the campus is beautiful. And I like, there was just something about it, but I just, my heart was in such turmoil. And I knew like, I said, all right, Let's just act like if I was going to come here. If I was going to come here, I would study youth ministry. I've I've had this call to minister to teenagers since I I was young. And so that would be the best translation of this. And so I went into this class and they have you like register for classes. Everybody else is picking like safe gen eds. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to pick like the the first level youth men classes, right? Like and throw in a few gen eds in there, but... If I don't get those, then that's just going to be a sign to me. that. So, I mean, this is the last orientation. So other people had already done this. So mm. we go into the registrar, and I'm watching students come in three or four times. And they have to pick different classes, right, to fill their schedule. And so I'm thinking, yeah, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to be for me. That's going to – I'm kind of praying through that in, in a really snarky way that whole time. And I get up there with my, like, ideal schedule, right, and I hand it to them, and they run it through, and they're like, all right, you're all set. And I went, you're joking, right? And they're like, nope, you're all set. Yeah, those are all your classes. So I walk out, and I was like, well, that was weird, right? So then, like, I'm like this I'm punk rocker at the time, kind of trying on identities as teenagers do. And there's a certain look to a lot of kids that go to all of it that is, was not the look that I had at that time. And so we had to pick roommates and I was like these girls like we are not they're not who I can spend a year with mm. and so you kind of like they like force you to mingle with each other right and so we're talking to these girls and I'm like talking and these girls will come up to me and they're like oh so and I, I don't know why I give them a valley girl accent but in my mind that's what I hear even though we're live in the midwest so <laughs> Um, but they would come up to me and they'd be like, well, what bands are you into? And then I would say bands like MXPX and Five Iron Frenzy and stuff. And they would just look at me like, I've never heard of them. And I was like, oh, I cannot do this. Right. And so at one point, this girl with like spiky red hair and like super like skin tight jeans. And she just like reaches in and says, oh, I heard that you liked this band. I also like them. It was, like, perfect. Like, we got a lot... Like, we're still friends. Like, Mm. she's also friends with my husband, and, like, it's really kind of neat. But we... 
like it was perfect like we were the perfect roommates for each other so that happens and I still was like I still was wrestling and so I just happened to be sitting in the quad with um, another student that was there and he didn't even end up going to all of it but the student that was there for orientation it was just the moment or whatever there were these prodding questions and so he's asking me these questions about like what I was doing what I wanted to study and so it's telling him like well if I come here I'll study youth ministry and stuff. He's like, well, if you come, like, why wouldn't you come? And I'm like, well, I can't afford to come here and blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and said what a thousand other people had said, including my own parents. But for whatever reason, in that moment, it clicked. If God calls you here, don't you think that God will provide for you to be here? And my parents had said that to me. Like, my mom likes to say, if God owns the cattle of a thousand hills, he can sell one to pay for your student loans. Like, she says that to me all the time. But it didn't hit me until that, for whatever reason, in that moment. And it was like this great weight lifted Mm. off of me. And I knew that that's where I was supposed to be. And so I walked over to the bookstore and bought an Olivet t-shirt because that was, like, cemented it for me, you know? And came back and we're driving home and I was like, no, this is where I'm going to be. And I wrestled with that still, even a little bit afterwards, um, even through the summer. And I talked to one of my friends, this punk rock kid. We would hang out at this like coffee shop that was like this place that bands played at in Grand Rapids. And I was sitting there and he'd heard me preach several times and I it was the night before I was moving to Olivet and I just thought I'm so nervous that I'm making the wrong choice and he looked at me and he said you're gonna go and you're gonna forget all about us so you're gonna become this amazing preacher and change the world and he goes and I don't want to hear you think that that's not what's going to happen mm. he goes so you're gonna get in your car tomorrow you're gonna drive to Olivet you're gonna learn to be a great pastor and God's gonna change lives and so then I drove to I drove to Olivet the next day with my um, dad, and I was still like the whole. It is not even that long of a drive. It's like four four hours from where I lived, and I still just had this anxiety about what if this is what if I'm just really making the wrong decision. But I got on like I literally pulled onto campus, still anxiety, and I opened my car door and I stepped to my foot down on the pavement and like there's it was just the peace of God like I knew I was in the right place and from that day on through my four years there I don't ever think I really doubted that I was where I was supposed to be I struggled like to pay to stay there like was still a struggle like just because people wanted me to be there didn't mean they were like here's eighty thousand dollars to stay here that would have been awesome but that didn't happen but there were people that advocated for me to stay there my sophomore year I almost got sent back because I couldn't afford and I called my pastor in tears because I'd already unloaded all my stuff and it just so happened my DS was on campus and he called my DS and my DS walked into the financial aid office and said do whatever you need to do to keep her here Mm. so they did (laughs) yeah and I just felt like all throughout my time at Olivet that it was just confirmation that I was where I was supposed to be and I there were some really hard things that happened and I went through some really dark kind of times but I don't know like even when I was doubting God and who God was 
I never doubted my call, really. Mm. And so that's kind of a weird thing to, like, get to the point where you're like, I'm, I'm kind of doubting my whole faith, but I'm not doubting what I should do. Like, <laughs> I feel like I'm a pastor. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I was just kind of gaining language in order to do that. And so my call was really ecclesial. Mm. It wasn't... It wasn't just, like, there was an inner turmoil to that, but it was the church saying, we recognize these gifts in you, and you need to do this. And they basically, like, dragged me into being a pastor until I relented and said, all right, I think God's also calling me to this. But the church recognized that in me years before I recognized that in myself. Wow. And so then at that point, I was just so embedded in the Church of the Nazarene that at that point, I wasn't even, like, in my mind, I never was like, oh, I need to go back to, like, the Wesleyan Church or I need to go back to whatever because my heart and soul was just so... And I was on the church board my senior year of high school. I was on the church board my freshman year at Olivet because um, I wasn't planning on being at Olivet. And so mm. they elected me on the church board and I was on it when I was home. So I got to see the inner workings and there were some really, really, really hard things that happened in my church during that. And I just remember my pastor going through so much and just turmoil, like horribly rough things. And him in tears one night at this board meeting, that was horrible. Like it was just really horrible and awful and damaging and unhealthy and all the adjectives you could use. Mm. But he came to me after that board meeting and my mom and I just kind of lingered. My mom was on the board as well and we just kind of lingered and he came up to me with like sobbing and said, and I was, this is a summer between my freshman and sophomore years at Olivet, and said to me, do not allow this to define church for you. Mm. Because the church is more than this. Wow. And so he's like, I know that this could define what church is, but this moment and these heartaches should not be the definition of church for you. And so even then, as I was moving into young adulthood, he was advocating for me and my voice and for helping me to form a healthy ecclesiology, even in the midst of his own pain, Mm. um, which was pretty profound. And so I know a lot of people say this, but it's people in moments like that, that you go, how could, how could I not be a part of this church? My blood, sweat, and tears are a part of this. Mm. And the blood, sweat, and tears of my mentors are a part of this. The blood, sweat, and tears of my parents and my grandparents are a part of this. And so, um, yeah. So then I ended up being a youth pastor and I got my master's degree in youth ministry. And Well, uh, unpack that for me a little bit. Yeah. So you're, you're at all of it. Yeah. You graduate. Yep. And then what happened? So after I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And so I took a position at a church for the summer, for a summer internship, which was a great fit because I, I was their youth pastor for three months. Um, I wasn't limited to being there forever. So it wasn't like I was signing up for a full-time position. It was great. And so that helped me kind of get my feet wet into that world. And it helped me kind of navigate like what working with a staff looked like, um, there were definitely things where I'm like, I feel really strongly about this. So I need to find a church that doesn't do some of these things and find mm. a church that does some of these things. But while I was there, I just was really wrestling with stuff. And so I just really was like, I don't know. 
I want to do something. And so part of my heart just longed for more education. And I think some of that was the safety of education. Mm. But I, they were piloting a master's degree in youth ministry at Olivet. And so I decided to come back after that summer. Um, and so that first year was on campus. And so I was just a full-time student and I was a TA and um, what that looked like. And it was really awesome and worked in the community. And I got to intern again with the church that I was in, like the kids that I'd been interning with since they were in like seventh grade. But the second year of the program for my master's program, like you do offsite intentionally in a full-time position. And so they were going to place me at a church in Flint And it ended up, like, falling through because that pastor resigned. And Mm. so then I was like, well, I actually got um, called to church in Colorado. I think that maybe this is – so I ended up going out there full time. And so then I just flew back um, and did my intensives for that last year. Was that youth ministry as well? Yep. And so I was the youth pastor. And so that was a pretty – it was a pretty good-sized church. And so that was, like, my really first first full-time – this was an internship. Mm. Nobody was holding my hand, thrust into the world of what it meant to be a pastor. So where did you go from there? That ended kind of messily, mm. which I learned a lot from. And so I'm not, it's not, I, I could have been really bitter and I wasn't. So I'm not really bitter about it. It is what it is. So I ended up moving back in with back into my sister and brother-in-law lived in Kankakee so I moved back there um for until I could find another job which ended up only being a few months and then I interviewed for two different positions I interviewed from one in southern southern California but there was an opening for like a really part-time youth pastor position with a parsonage in Michigan in rural Michigan I'm from Michigan wow and so I loved a lot of what was being said like the idea of going to a big church in southern california was kind of attractive but my heart was so broken that i needed to heal and living closer to family on like the church i went to was this rural church with like 20 acres of property and so it was like healing for me and so that was great and so even though it was like super part-time like payment even full-time with part-time pay like, I substitute taught, which I discovered I loved, which I do now. And so that was kind of a cool thing. So things all kind of are redeemed in that. But I loved that. I met, I still have great relationships with those people. I, like, it was really good. Mm. Um, I loved it there. I was close to family. Like, it just was really, really healing for me. So I would have stayed there for a long time, but then my husband and I started dating and he lived in the Chicago area and Michigan's economy was not and still isn't really great. And so we kind of knew things were going to go somewhere. And so we were lamenting that he probably would never be able to find a job in Michigan. And so would we just have to be long distance forever? When I was like, let me just check the Nazarene job board. And it was like one in the morning. We're like talking on the phone. I'm like, let me just check the Nazarene job board. Like maybe there's a church in the Chicago area. And I looked and there was one in the suburbs. And the description was like perfect for me. Mm. And I interviewed and loved it. And ended up going there as their associate pastor of youth and small group ministry for four years. Wow. We ended up like, that's a church we got engaged in. That's a church like... We got married while we were there, and I got ordained while I was there. Mm. Like, that was an awesome place 
yeah, it was great. Like we had like the most awesome small group ever that everybody would say on paper. Like I was reading all these small group books and everything was saying like in order for a small group to, to work, it needs to be like homogenous, like same age group, same racial demographic, same political beliefs, whatever. And we were like none of those things and it worked awesomely. Like it was just so life-giving. And mm. so that started posing questions to me about how does this look in church as a whole? Because there's something to this. Like there's something to sitting in a group with people who are very conservative, people who are much more liberal. And then we had like a 16-year-old, we had a 93-year-old, we had um, like these super new Christians who like didn't know anything really like just new Christians that were just like on fire for Jesus but didn't really know what that looked like and it was like messy and beautiful and Mm. great and I as I was there those four years and I loved my youth group and I loved doing youth ministry there and I had a lot of freedom and I was like doing some really like I just really loved it there our time there was awesome But as I progressed in those four years that I was there, I was discovering that I was getting more and more excited about my small group than I was about youth ministry. Not because I didn't love my students or I wasn't so excited about youth ministry, but I thought that there was like this weird change in my heart. And so then I started thinking like, maybe I'm supposed to do more than this. Like maybe there's something more to my call. Um, and people in the past throughout my call have said to me, have talked to me about church planting. Like I've had people say to me, like when I was in Colorado, I had coffee with Dean Coles once. And he, that was the first time I ever met Dean. And he says to me at coffee, don't, don't allow things to like limit your call of being a senior pastor. And I looked at him like he was crazy. Cause I was like, I don't want to be a senior pastor. Like, where's that coming from? And he was just like, Oh, you're going to be a senior pastor someday. Right. And so I've had other people saying that to me. And then I had people in my church at this point mm-hmm. saying that to me, like there's something more for you. Um, and so this idea of church planting kind of happened. And then we were just praying where where do we plant like this is what we want to do we want to see what our small group was but we want to see that as a church right yeah. like we want to see what what would that look like if we took this small group but we took everything that we learned about that and we applied that to a church like intergenerational like multi-ethnic this beautiful place where people who on paper on paper, every single church expert, in quotations, it's not going to work. But then it does work. And it's the kingdom of God and it's beautiful and we're growing and it's amazing. Mm. So I was like, it's probably not going to be easy because our small group isn't easy. But there's something, and I kept telling my husband, Mac, like there's something to what we're doing here People are missing out on this because they're not being in conversation with people that are 93 and 60 and 50. And they're not being in conversation with Tea Party conservatives and Democrats, right? They're not being in conversation with these people about what it means to be a Christian. And they're missing out on this amazing thing that we get to be a part of once a week. So how did you get from there to Hammond where you are now? Okay, so so we loved where we were. We loved our small group. We 
were feeling like there were just some things that it was very evident that it was there were things that were happening where it was evident that I kind of had come in my ministry as far as I could go where I was I don't mean that negatively I just it just it was what it is like we just I knew there just was stuff so out of the blue I get this email um, from Dean Coles actually who says, I gave your name to Diaz, who's looking for an executive director director of a compassionate ministry center to also pastor a church in conjunction with that. And your name was the first one that I thought of because I know that's your heart. I think you would fit really well with that. So I just gave this Diaz your name. I hope that's okay. So Dave contacts me and says, you know, I got your name, I have this building and, and it's in Hammond, Indiana. Um, would you come down? I just want to meet you on an interview. Would you even be open to what that would be like? And so tell my husband, you know, this is what happened. And I said, but I said, I'm not, it's not that I'm not happy where I am, but maybe there's something to this because this is very out of the blue. And so he's like, all right, you might as well at least check it out. So I meet with him and we have lunch and he shows me this old limestone church building with stained glass windows. And the irony is previously when Mac and I were wrestling about church planting, he said at one point, wouldn't it be great if just somebody just gave us an old urban church building and we could just like renovate that and just have church there because there's all these old buildings that are empty and falling apart and there's something beautiful and redemptive about that and and kind of I was like that would be awesome right so this is that building and so it's beautiful and so we I'm like this is awesome we're just 20 minutes from where my in-laws live and my husband knows the area really well we I go and I I walk in the building instantly I start thinking of all of the things that this space could hold for the community. So the building is right in a neighborhood. It's across the street from elementary school. It shares a parking lot with the funeral home. Like it's right in a neighborhood. There's houses everywhere. Great location, beautiful building, has a ton of history built in 1939. And my mind just starts envisioning all these things. Mm. So then I'm, so I go to like have dinner with the DS and we're just talking about like theology of place and like how the church should be the heart of compassion in the community and what it would look like to live in a community long enough to see that community transformed by the grace of God mm. through the church. So we start, start talking about all these things that I get super fired up about and I love to talk about and all of these things that had been stirring in my heart and I fell in love with him (laughs) like as a leader just through that conversation I was like I resonate so much with what you're saying and he was like I just want he's like I don't care about church growth in the stereotypical sense i don't care about he was i think everybody wants of these churches that are all about you know like the bees a budget and a band and um and a building have all those things and he's like well here's a building but i don't know if we need those other things like i think there should be something unique about us outside of that so if somebody came and there was an impact and that impact was just on one person's life, isn't it still valuable that they were there and that the church was present and that they were 
prophetically speaking things to the community by being present. Mm. And I loved that. And I that's I was articulating a lot of the same things. And so I was when he said, All right, we need you to I, I love you and want you to interview with the um board of directors for this nonprofit, I was like, Absolutely. And so we're we started telling my family and they're kinda of getting excited about the possibility. There was a salary, there's insurance, there's a parsonage, like all of these things. I'd be getting paid a lot more than where I was. Met with the board. And my husband and I met, both met with them, and I started asking questions with, your building is amazing. You have all this potential. What do you want to do with that? And so at Current, they were doing an after-school program, like tutoring program, and they did some summer camps, and that's what they did. And they looked at me and they said, well, we just really want to do one thing well and just focus on that. And in my mind, I was saying, I was thinking, you're doing one thing, but you're not doing it well. And there's a boys and girls club down the street that has more resources than you do. And you're doing the same thing that they are, essentially. And you're tagging a prayer at the end and calling that a compassionate ministry center. I don't know if that's the best use of our resources. And I don't know if having a compassionate ministry center standing independently of the church is what we should be about. And I didn't say all that. I'm just thinking all this. Then the rest of the questions that were asked of me were all about fundraising, right? Meeting with people to fundraise. And again, the car to drive back to our home in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And I said to my husband, what do you, what do you think? And he said, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I think if you go there, you're going to feel like your hands are tied. And I think you're going to get frustrated very quickly. Mm. And I, I said to him in the car, I said, if I had to make a decision today, I would say no. Because I feel like my hands would be tied, but also just because I, I don't know if they're theology of place and their ecclesiology is what I would be and I don't and I I said I don't want to run a business I just want to be a pastor and so I emailed the DS the next day and I had gotten the position and it was great pay and it was just there were a lot of benefits moving closer to family and I said this is all great and I have to say no and I said, I'm going to be really honest on why I'm saying no. And so I said, I think it's the church that should be the heart of compassion. I think it's the local church that's going to transform the world. I don't think that's going to come from a nonprofit. I think that's going to come from the church. And I'm not called to be a business, somebody that runs a business. I'm called to be a pastor. And so he said, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And that was that. And then I thought this reconfirms where we are, right? Like, this is reconfirming that we should stay. And so we actually told our small group, like, that we'd had this opportunity and that we had interviewed, but we decided to stay. And they were all relieved because they wanted us to stay. And we just said, we feel like this has renewed our call here. And so that was great. Until about five months later, and the DS emails me back and says... We decided to close that nonprofit, that Compassionate Ministry Center, so we have this empty building. And I've just been really thinking and praying and envisioning what we should do. And we could sell the building, 
but I just really think that Hammond needs a, a church of the Nazarene. And I just really think that neighborhood needs a church. And so I really want to see this church plant that's a church that's compassionate and loving, that has this great theology of place that articulates that, that that lives things out with their neighbors, that isn't all about budgets and butts and pews, but is about the transformative work of God in a community. And I really think that you're the pastor to come and do that. Mm. But I also need you to know there's no pay. Like there's a parsonage that's paid off, but there's no longer a salary. There's no longer insurance. There's no longer these things because we closed the center. But so you'd have to be co-vocational, but we, I think you're the person for this position. And I said, I'm going to have to really think about this. Is there a timeline? He says, no, take all the time you need. And we took a lot of time. We were just wrestling with what that would look like and really struggling with this idea of surrendering to good, decent paying jobs to move to a place we don't know, to move into a neighborhood with people we don't know, to build a church from nothing in an old space. Mm. But not only that, the added complications of the reason why there was a church building there without a church in it in the first place was because white flight had pushed that church out of the community in recent history. So we were moving back. Like our question was, how do we move back into the city into an area that remembers you abandoning them? And we wrestled a lot and prayed. And I kind of get to the point where I was like, this is what I wanted to do. Like, as a child, I felt called to do urban ministry in the form of teaching high school. And I've always still felt that tug to do urban ministry. And I really want to know what it's like to live in a place and see it transformed by being present. Mm. And I can try all those new things that I wanted to try from my small group, I could apply that. And so all of these things, and so I, I kind of was feeling yes, and my husband was kind of feeling no, like the practical side of that. So one day, I think it was after church, finally, I just, I just for several weeks, I just said, God, if you're going to call us, call both of us, because if I ask him to give up his job, and I give up my job that pays, it is going to end poorly, right? If he ends up presenting me for that, and I, I need to make sure that that relationship is a priority, and so... He says to me in the car one day, email Dave and tell him that we're moving to Hammond. So that was it. So I emailed Dave and said we were moving to Hammond and um, we left well from the church we were and I told mm. them on the day that I told them that I was leaving with tears on everybody's part that I can preach till I'm blue in the face that you risk everything to follow after God. But if I don't live that, then my words are absolutely meaningless. And so maybe the best sermon I can preach in the sanctuary is leaving the sanctuary to go and do this new thing. Mm. So we put in our resignation and my husband put in his resignation. Neither one of us had a job and the district is paying movers to help move us and... Um, they showed up and my husband got a job like a week before we were scheduled to move and he started 
the first day of his job was the first day that we were supposed to be in Hammond. We're moving to Hammond, and so... How long ago was that first? So we've been there at this point. It'll be three years in May, so just shy, like two and a half years, just shy of, of three years. I always explain it, like the only way to explain it is the prevenient grace of God has been present through the whole process. Because people talk about church planting being lonely and difficult. And there are aspects of it that are really difficult. So I don't want to downplay that. And there are probably aspects that are lonely, but I've never really felt isolated. Which is awesome. And some of that is the district. So crazy thing, Dean Coles, who recommended me, at the time was executive director of an organization that partners suburban church youth ministries with urban ministries to do short-term mission trips Hmm. my own pastor didn't know that i was going to hammond yet but i said to him i wanted you to know that we're moving to hammond and his face lit up and he said we don't have any host sites in chicago right now can you host students Hmm. and i said yes right so we had planned on we had this building like full of stuff we needed to clean and we just planned on not using it for a long years probably Five weeks after we moved, we had a group of 30 teens from the United Methodist Church from Nebraska (coughs) come to our church. They couldn't even stay in the church because it was too dirty, so they stayed in our house. And we had sleeping bags all over our living room, and we'd only been at that church, like, trying to do this new thing for five weeks. So I didn't even know street names really yet or anything. (laughs) And all these kids from Nebraska show up and they like were awesome and like helped us clean out our building. And then we kept getting calls. So from this, this organization that sends missions teams, um, we have this group of 60 from Tennessee. They're supposed to go somewhere else, but they bailed last minute. Can you take them? And I was like, all right, I guess we'll just put them in the sanctuary. So we had like air mattresses all through our sanctuary. Like we put all the girls on one side, all the guys on the other and the leaders down the middle. And like, it was crazy and we just made it work. And I did like church services with them. And like, we had the like Eucharist, like celebrated the Eucharist together. And I called it, we did service with them, with this group. And they all were like laying in their sleeping bags. And I just called it bedside church service. Like it was just crazy. And we had multiple other groups like last minute come. So we ended up having, like I had to scramble to get a bank account for our church. Like we weren't even established. Like I had to run through and like come up with like an EIN and all of these things just so I could get a bank account, right? Under our name. Because we had checks and money to do stuff with. So they were painting and throwing stuff out. Like, we rented a dumpster. Like, we were able to get in- internet. Like, things that I thought wouldn't happen until years later were happening. Wow. Um, so that was really awesome. And so because of that kind of catalyst for us, it was so awesome, too, because I'm a youth pastor, right? Like, that's my heart and my background. So it was like the blending of all of the things I love. Like I got to do youth ministry still, but in a completely different way. And I got to talk to them about the complexities of racial reconciliation. And I got to talk to them about the complexities of doing ministry in an urban setting where there's a memory of white flight and abandonment by the church and um, help them kind of process through some of those difficult questions. And I developed like some cool relationships with the youth pastors outside of the denomination from all over the country and students and I had students from different denominations that would say to me like 
I've never met a woman pastor before and this is really powerful for me, right? Like just really cool. And so then they would just sit and they would just ask me questions. And so I'm like, so that was, I didn't know church planting would look like that, right? And I know that we're in a unique setting because we have a building already, but like I didn't know it could look like that. So then we're like, what we want to do is we were like, we want to be intentionally multi-ethnic. Our neighborhood is a third black, a third Hispanic, and a third white. And so we want to reflect that. We want to be intentionally intergenerational because we think the kingdom of God is all of those things. And so it's going to be harder and it's going to be messier, but it's worth the hard work. So to help my little launch team out that we kind of developed, which is my in-laws and some friends from the area, because my husband grew up 20 minutes away from there. So we have some people in the area that we pulled in. We decided let's do an opening service on Easter Sunday, Hmm. almost exactly a year after we had moved in. So we're like, all we need to do for that, we don't need to get everything done, but we just need to renovate, like just, just get the sanctuary done. And so our literal blood, sweat, and tears are in that sanctuary because we had to scrape and paint and plaster and it's building from 39. So it's it's it was just kind of a mess and everybody was working. I substitute taught, so I was working. So at the end of the day, we would get there and then everybody would get off of work. They'd come straight to the church. We'd eat like Wendy's and then we would work till like 11 at night, right? And then do it again wow. to try to get it done for Easter. So we launched on Easter. We sent out postcards. They ended up going to the wrong neighborhood. So we were all, yeah, it was just, you know, things like that that happen. You spend all this money that you don't really have to begin with. And then it was just kind of silly. But regardless, we had some people from the neighborhood come. We're doing this new thing. Um, It was awesome for a lot of, a long time. It was like six of us. Then that second summer we were there, we decided to do vacation Bible school. And we had a missions team come from Kansas City. And they were probably the most diverse group we've ever had. Their youth pastor was black, and so that was pretty cool. And so that some of those nuances to our ministry context, they had already kind of processed, so that was really neat. And But they came, and I said to them, we're going to have you guys help lead VBS, and we have never done this before. We sent out postcards. No, It could be that not a single person shows up. So I don't want you to be disappointed because I know that this is what you're here to do. But I also think this is a great lesson for you as youth that things people don't always operate the way that we want them to. And they were awesome. So the first night nobody came. And instead of just sitting there and being like, this really stinks, like we paid money to be on this mission trip. Mm-hmm. They looked at me and said, what can we do to help invite students? And they were like, get us a stack of flyers. And they canvassed our neighborhood and just passed out flyers. So the next night, we had, like, two kids show up. But they wouldn't come into the church building. Two or three. And we realized that these kids had no context in which to understand how a church operates. So they didn't know you could just walk in the building. They said, don't we need to have an invitation in order to come in? Like a ticket to come in. So I looked at my missions team that was there and I said, all right, you're going to learn a little bit about the flexibility of ministry. If they're not going to come in here, we're all going outside. We're scrapping everything that we have prepared. We're going to go out. Like we have, we put a bonfire pit in at our church. And so I said, we're going to do a fire. We're going to have snacks. 
We're going to bring the soccer goals out and play soccer. We're not going to pray. We're not going to do a Bible study. We're not going to do any of that. We're just going to meet these kids where they are. They loved it, right? These mm. kids loved it. So the next night, they brought all their friends. So then, then, then the next night, which was the third night, there's several of them. And they say to me at one point in the process, and we'd already planned, we're like, we're not, we're just going to do that again, right? Because we're just making contacts. Like, yeah. we're just connecting. We're just going to play soccer and hang out and whatever. And one of the kids at one point comes up to me and they're like, Pastor Robbie, we heard that there's a skit. Can we see it? And I was like, sure. So they all come into the sanctuary, which is the first time they've ever come into the sanctuary because we've been doing everything outside. We bring them into the sanctuary and we did this little skit for them. And then they just sat there like captivated. And so I was like, well, they're like interested. So I'll just tell them the Bible story like in a short inversion. So I just tell them this Bible story, like really short inversion. And then they're just still sitting there like captivated. These kids are. And so then I just asked them, like I completely took a risk. I was like, can I pray for you? And they were like, yeah, that'd be great. And so I prayed for them. And so then the next night we had more. And so by the end of the week, we ended up having 17 kids at this VBS. So we invited all of these kids to come back to church. And um, the next Sunday, there were like five of us, like always. But two weeks later, this tall, skinny black kid walks into the sanctuary we have breakfast every sunday from 10 to 11 so we always have breakfast before worship service and he comes in and he's there for breakfast and we're all introducing ourselves and we knew him from that and a year later now he uh, makes the coffee every sunday morning (laughs) like he brings his sisters and his niece um he's still there and there were a couple other boys that have have come and gone and and some of that but he's still there and his life is rough. Like, his dad's incarcerated. His mom's essentially this single mom. And he has a sister that has special needs. And his niece lives with them full time. And mm. I look at my congregation all the time. Like, when it's just the adults, which is rarely happens. But when it's them, when he's gone for a Sunday, which is rare, I tell them... I know that everybody's all ask me all the time, how many people do you have? How many how many people do you have now? How many people do you have? And they want this like, yeah, we tr- planted a church a year ago and now we have 8,000 people in our church. But I always tell that story because we're his family and his life has been transformed because we showed up mm. and we stayed. And so I tell my congregation all the time, Isn't it worth it that we spent hours scraping walls and painting? And isn't it beautiful and worth it that we cry so many tears over our neighborhood? To have this 13-year-old kid who is looked at by everybody in a large percentage of the world in our political context right now is a threat it is a statistic but his life has been transformed because we showed up and they say it's totally worth it right it's totally worth it and now we've added people to that mix and now we're like the toddler church because we have like four toddlers on (laughs) sunday and it's loud and it's messy and 
it's beautiful and it's this beautiful mosaic of the kingdom and I like you asked me how I got there and I don't know <laughs> because the only way to explain that is the provenient grace of God calling to the hearts of people mm. through the redemption of Jesus right like he's redeemed all these things the hard places the great places my experiences all these struggles the fact that I'm a woman that a white woman married to a black guy and we moved into a neighborhood where that is important like that matters I didn't marry him for that but like God's redeemed that into a thing where that's also used like I, I, I've heard other people say and I, I've used that like God doesn't waste things if, we're, mm. if we offer them up so all of these things we have offered up God has used and it's beautiful and I wake up some Sunday mornings really tired and I know that's going to happen probably even this week same thing like I'll wake up really tired and have a moment where I wish that I could go back to sleep you know for a little bit longer instead of having to go and prepare breakfast and and then I walk into my sanctuary and then my little three-year-old show up and their faces light up and they say Pastor Robbie and they jump into my arms or when we serve the Eucharist every week and the 16 year old girl with severe special needs receives communion and I glimpse the kingdom of God like I just think I'm the one that's so honored and privileged to be here this is what I was created for, which sounds weird. Like, that's what I feel like sometimes. Like, it so resonates with my heart. And and there's so much to urban ministry. People, people worry about if we're safe. And people are really critical because our neighbors aren't all white. And, like, people say weird things to us. And then they look at me and they're like, how do you like Hammond? And I just look and my heart, like, swells. Like, the Grinch's heart growing three sizes. And I'm like, I love it. Like, mm. I cannot explain to you how much I love it. Like, I love walking into my classrooms when I substitute teach. And I love going to the grocery store with people. And I love, I run by myself in an urban area. And it freaks a bunch of people out. And it's never been an issue. But I love, like, running through my neighborhood. And I love... My little, I have, we have, we host Al-Anon and it's all Hispanic ladies and I love when they come in and they say hello pastor with all of their various accents from where they are. Mm. And I love it when they tell me I've become a citizen and I get to celebrate with them. And I love the hard conversations that we get to have about racial reconciliation. And I love the hard conversations that we get to have about education and and reform for poverty and all of these things because of where we are but I mostly love that we get to be a family for this teenage kid with dyslexia with hardship and we get to be his place Mm. and we get to eat Thanksgiving dinner together and we get to celebrate Christmas together and he shows up And he's gone from being this kid that wandered into vacation Bible school to being a part of the church. Mm. I know that you're passionate about racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So just wondering if you could talk about your marriage and your context and what that looks like where you are. The unique thing about being so being in a relationship with a person of color is that when you are a person of a color, you cannot avoid talking about race. So a friend of mine said yesterday, you guys talk about race a lot. And it, I was reflecting on that and I thought it was kind of funny and I was like, yeah, we do because we have to. And that's one of those ways that white privilege seeps in. Like, I don't think about being white. My husband consistently is forced to think about being black. Mm. So I speed when I drive all the time, a lot, like really fast. And I never thought about it. But every time my husband's in the car with me and I'm speeding, he tells me to slow down. And he says, you cannot speed because I'm a black man. Or something to that point. Usually it's probably sillier than that, but something along those lines. And it stops me because then I realize, like, that's just an example of my white privilege. Like, I don't, I don't think about that, right? So we have to talk about it. We don't have the luxury to be quiet about it. My church, it's probably changed. I had to do some sort of survey and my church was 62% black, but we've had a few new, more, a, a couple white women and um, interracial couple join our church. So we've had, a, it's probably a little different than that, but we're definitely probably 50% or more black as a church. So because of that, as a church, we don't have the luxury of not talking about race, right? If I don't get up on Sunday morning at times, when a shooting happens of a black kid and I have a black kid that looks like that in my congregation, I have to speak to that. Mm. Because if I'm not, I'm not being faithful to my congregation. And they're going to know. And so we had a, a woman that just recently started coming into our church, and she's married to a Haitian man, and they have a three-year-old daughter, and so she's interracial. And the reason why they started coming to our church was after um, a shooting, one of the shootings. She actually was going to lend something to our church for an event. So she was going to come at the end of church to bring this thing that we were borrowing. And I, I said, actually, I just want to invite you to come to church. She lives in Chicago. We went to school together. So I come to church. We have breakfast at this time. We have worship service. Come in and be a part. And she said, I was really already thinking about coming because I'm about to go visit my white side of our family, my family. And I just know that the conversations about race there are going to be so damaging and hurtful. And I need a place to talk about. Essentially, she was saying she needs a place to lament. Mm. And so that Sunday, right, everybody was talking about what are you going to, in social media, and, and they're saying, what are you going to preach about this Sunday in light of these shootings that happened? And I said to them, I'm not going to preach on Sunday because my church is 60% black and they don't need to hear me give them a sermon. I need to listen to them. Oh. And so we pulled our tables, we call it table church, sometimes where we don't do a formal sermon. We just pull our breakfast tables together when we're done eating and we just dialogue. And we read about, and actually it was an electionary text for that week, right? It was the Good Samaritan, which was like crazy providential in 
a weird way. So we just read that. And I just asked them, and we have kids, like, so we had eight-year-olds at our table, we had this teenager, we had a three-year-old, we had adults, we had every, this mix of people, white and black, Hispanic, and I just say, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? So we have this little girl that comes to our church, and she's eight years old, and she's from East St. Louis, but she comes and she stays with her grandmother, during the summer she comes so she's there whenever she's on vacation and she says to me in my neighborhood there was a nine-year-old girl that got shot this year and so everybody put in their yards signs that said put your guns down and I think that that's being a good neighbor and I wish that I had recorded it because it was so prophetic like out of the mouths of babes right because I wanted to show that to white church. And my sister-in-law who comes to our church says, I thought the same thing. That that would have been a powerful moment to be able to then share with the white church. This is what she thinks it means to be a good neighbor is to put a yard sign that says essentially stop shooting each other. And so I listen to their hearts and I listen to what's going on and I do a lot of listening and I do a lot of explaining sometimes about where white people are coming from. But I do a lot of listening and I know to an extent because I'm a woman in a male-dominated field of what it's like to be alienated, but I do not know what it's like to be my sister-in-law. I've never had a man come up to me and say, I don't know what it's like to have sex with a white girl. But my sister-in-law has had men multiple times come up to her and say, I don't know what it's like to have sex with a black girl, and I would love to experience that. And I just hear, and I hear these stories on a regular basis. And there's got to be room for laments, and there's got to be room for me to say Black Lives Matter from my pulpit. Because if I don't do those things, I'm robbing my, not my congregation, but I'm robbing my parish, my neighborhood mm. of a prophetic voice that needs to happen. Because they're saying those things to one another, but they really need us to say that. And the kingdom of God is diverse and beautiful and a mosaic, and we have done a really horrible job of that. So I tell people the great quote from the Reverend Dr. King that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the country. And then I ask, has that changed in the past 60 years? And I don't think it has. I think that we're unique um and how we're doing things and how we operate and what we do but in the wider church of the nazarene we show up and my husband's the only black person mm. and he notices that obviously and other people notice that and it's frustrating for him to feel like he has to be the voice of an entire people yeah because it's not fair like you shouldn't have to be so the hard work of racial reconciliation is a lot of listening, right? But then also I get really tired of people are say, saying we have to listen because I think then that means we don't have to speak up because we eventually have to speak up. 
I think there's a disconnect there where we just are afraid to speak up for whatever. I think some of it is like we're afraid because that puts us in the same boat. Like we put targets on ourselves a little bit. I don't have luxury to not speak up. So I do. And I, so that's some of it. But I think also we're afraid to speak up because we're afraid to say the wrong things. Mm. And we have to say the wrong things sometimes. And it's messy and it's scary. But if we don't just start saying things, even if it's the wrong thing, like we're not going to see where the wrong things are to change. So we need to listen. We need to have that posture of listening. And then we need to respond and speak up. And then we need to re-listen and say, like, what you said was offensive or wrong or hurtful. And this is why. And then we need to come back with humility to hear that instead of getting defensive, which is what we tend to do. We have to come back and humbly say, like, yeah, you're right. Like, that was a really horrible thing to say. Help me to say this better or whatever. So it's this whole cycle of repentance and, and movement and, and recon- of, of, to be reconciled. And there's not an easy answer. Like, I don't have a great solution because we're still working through this. And it is messy and hard and painful. But the problem is that we, when we feel pain, our, our instant inclination is to either fight or flight. And both of those responses are not what God is calling us to So our response has been to flee and to leave the neighborhood or leave the circumstance and move to be around people that are like us, which is so counter to the kingdom of God message of living into, of moving into relationship with people, right? But our other reaction is to fight, which we also do a lot of, which is also counter to this gospel message of being peacemakers. And then we get defensive and then we put up walls and then we argue and we see who can yell louder. And neither of those postures is anything of what the church should be. Because the church is a church of the Eucharist, right? And the Eucharist says we come and we are broken and just poured out for one another. Mm. And the Eucharist is an equalizer that says all of us are welcome here like I love we do the we receive the Eucharist every week at our church very intentionally for a couple reasons one because it's it's great for children because it's super interactive and having a liturgy helps them to learn the the postures of the church But every week I declare to my congregation of a variety of people that we are one in Christ. But in order to be one in Christ at this table, we have to be broken and spilled out for one another. Mm. And that takes action and that takes speaking. And that means that I could physically, and I, and I don't want to downplay this, that means that physical harm could come to me. In the U.S., we don't like physical harm and we like safety. By default, being part of the church should not be. The church, I don't know, the church should not be a safe place. Not in the way that we think it should be. Mm. Like, it should upset us and rile us up and and frustrate us a little bit and, and be a little scary because we're asking people to take up their crosses, right? Not as a decoration, but to die on. 
that's reconciliation, right? Like the only way for me to be reconciled with my brothers and sisters is that I would be willing to die for them and with them. So many of us aren't. And we'd rather move to gated communities than live in a ghetto where, my, where I could be physically harmed. And we've got to stop acting like protecting ourselves and our well-being is the gospel because it's not and if we can't do that and i really think i really and i used to tell my mom this as a teenager i really think if we really grasp what it means to be jesus followers like if we really grasp what it means to to die to self in order to be resurrected right if we really really believed in the resurrection of the dead we would be running to the scariest and most dangerous places of the world. We would be, you couldn't stop us from being there. So I have to ask myself on a regular basis as I do the hard work of racial reconciliation, do I actually believe in the resurrection? Because if I don't, then I better go find a safer community to live in. I better find safer schools to substitute teach in. I better go to places that where everybody looks like me and everybody communicates like me, but that is not the message of the resurrection. The message of the resurrection is that we are resurrected through death. And so I have to die to my privilege. I have to die to those things in a very metaphorical sense. And we're totally able to do the metaphor, right? Like I'll die to myself metaphorically till all the time. I hear it all the time. But then you ask people to actually physically die. And it becomes another issue. When you ask people to, to give up their entire paychecks, like sell everything you have and give it to the poor, it becomes a different issue. And that's the hard work of reconciliation is that I have to be willing not only to say that black lives matter, but I have to live that. And so what it means to live that is that I'm going to have to put myself in harm's way because they're often in harm's way. Mm-hmm. So when I, we do a Martin Luther King Jr. walk in Hammond every year, and this year it was like negative 20 degrees. <laughs> And I went and Mac didn't because he didn't want to go out with the cold, which is kind of ironic, but I wanted to show up. And I show up there and I'm like in snow pants because it was freezing. And there's these black guys and these black pastors out there and these black guys are out there. The news is interviewing them and they're shouting and they're like, our ancestors were shot and beat. And there are people that look like us being the shot in the streets. Negative 20 degree weather is nothing compared to that. And I almost could have wept in those moments, except for my face would have froze, but... Because there was something to that of showing up, right? There's something to that of showing up. And so I think that living in solidarity with others is putting yourself in harm's way. Mm. And I don't know if we do that enough in the church, which is why I think sometimes the black church is a little skeptical of us. Like, I think they're a little skeptical of us because they show up to those things, right? Like, they show up to Martin Luther King Jr. walk, and they're there at 6 in the morning in negative 20-degree weather, and, and 
the white church is, is sorely absent from that. Or that's the only day that they show up. And, and so I think at the heart of it is, is that as ho- we're holiness people, and I get really frustrated when the culture defines our theology for us instead of our theology defining who we are. And I think we've done that with race. I think we've done that with a lot of things, but I think we've done that with race. So as holiness people that believe in the resurrection, like we can say, I believe, like I, like I did, I can say till I'm blue in the face that I believe to follow God no matter what, but if I don't live it, it doesn't matter. I can say I believe in the death and resurrection till I'm blue in the face, but until I'm willing to put myself in harm's way, to walk and be a peacemaker in difficult situations where I know that harm could come to me, do I believe that? Like, is that, am I embodying that theology of the resurrection? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not good at that all the time. I don't know if every day I'm like, yeah, I want to go get shot today. Like, I'm not saying that. Like, let's, right? But when there were shootings, I said to my husband, I just don't want you to get shot, right? It's a big 300-pound black guy. People automatically assume he's intimidating when they see him, and so I said that to him. And Most spouses, if you say to your spouse, I just want you to come home at the end of the day, whatever, would say, oh, it'll be okay, right? I'm not. That's not going to happen to me. He didn't say that. He said to me, it could happen because we live in that tension, I live in that tension, and uh, and I, if I if I am going to actually thrive in that tension, then I cannot fear death. But I have to embrace that as being part of what it means to live into resurrection. You've kind of already answered this in a couple of different ways, but what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? And what is it that's keeping you here? I love the Church of the Nazarene. So that's a big part of that. My husband loves the Church of the Nazarene. So that's a lot of it. Whether it was circumstantial that I ended up here, whatever circumstances it was. But I also think of it as my family. And so I come from a big family and... I can criticize my sister, but if somebody outside my family criticizes my sister, like I will not be happy. And because I love my, I love this family of the Church of the Nazarene. Some of that sometimes is speaking hard words, but I lose my right to do that if I leave, right? <laughs> so maybe that's a little bit arrogant or narcissistic on my part that I think that I am here to influence change at times but I do sometimes think that that's part of my role and part of my and I think my husband would say the same thing that we intentionally are are trying to to see the church become what it can be because we love it Mm. and I just have a tremendous amount of hope yeah like our I love the history in our heart and where we were and our bones are like good so I want to see where that goes. Like, I love the message of holiness. Like, that's why I keep coming back to theology. Like, our theology is so awesome. We just don't always let that inform our practice. 
And so I'm encouraged to stay because I think that at least in my context, and I really love the church, and I know a lot of people have said this, but I love the church because of that local context too, right? Like those connections and those stories. So in my church context, like I tell my congregation all the time, I think the best days are yet to come. Like we're in great days in our church. We're little and tiny and, and we struggle. But we're in great days. And I don't think we're in our best days. And I sometimes look at the church in Nazareth and I think the same thing. Like there are good things happening. But I think better things are going to happen because I look at some of the young leaders <laughs> and I know they still consider me young, even though I'm over 30 at this point. But now at this point, there's other leaders after me coming up, right? And I see them and I hear some of their stories and I hear some of their heart. And I'm like, awesome. Like, I want to be around to be for them what my childhood pastor was for me. Mm. I want to be able, to, I want somebody to be able to say, like, she pulled me kicking and screaming into ministry because she saw where God was calling me. I don't care if that person's male or female, but I want to see that happen. And I hope that that happens out of our church. And I hope that those are people of color. And I hope that those are women. And I hope that those are people that feel like they have never had a voice. And I think that that's going to happen. But I want to be around to see it, right? Like, I want to be around to see it. And I want to be around, I want to get to the point where I can move aside and give them space and see them flourish and see them live into what God is calling them to do. And if I leave, I won't get to do that. I won't get to see that in the same way. So yeah, I have a lot of hope and I love, I call myself a Naz nerd. Like sometimes we hashtag Naz nerd on Twitter if you ever want to see things, but like, because I love the church so much, like I follow DS elections on other districts, which is super, super nerdy. But because I care so much about it, right? And I love it. And so that's that's why I'm here in this way I stay. But it, I'm called here, so. If someone had a question about church planting or Hammond or racial reconciliation, where can they reach you? The best way to reach me is Facebook. So I'm on Facebook, Robbie Kanzler. Um, but I'm also on Twitter as Rev R Kanzler. I'm on Instagram as R Kanzler. Um, you can email me. It's Pastor Robbie at HammondMissionChurch.com. All of those ways are great. Um, I have a blog that you can kind of find that I can tell you about. But all those things are linked through. Where's the blog? Facebook. Um, it's HammondMissionChurch.blogspot.com. So you can read some stuff there. We have, the church has a Facebook page as well. That's the Mission Church of the Nazarene. So all of those places, I am very active on social media. So I'm easy to find. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome.